Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning because we believe these truths as well. We know that Christ came to make your name known. We know that he came on the great mission to seek and save the lost, to gather a family for you and for himself, a bride that will worship him and glorify him forever. We are but a small part of that bride, many of whom you've gathered around the world this very day, this morning, to worship you and to sing to you and to pray to you and by your grace hear your words proclaimed. We ask, Father, that you would help us this morning. Many of us are tired and many of us are distracted. I ask this morning that would not be the case as we worship you, that you would help us to hear, that you would help us to respond and to magnify the great work of the cross in our lives that we do have Christ now and forever and to compel us to run a race that brings you honor and glory, not just individually but as a church. We ask this, Lord, that you might be magnified here at Camden Avenue to your grace and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, is one of the most exquisite chapters in all of sacred scripture. As you know, as we saw last week, it is the prayer of from God the Son to God the Father, regarding Himself, regarding the Father, and regarding His church. By God's grace, we will hear Him speak today in verses 6 through 10. Todd Perry is the CEO and Chief Executive Officer of Pujols Family Foundation. It is a charitable organization that seeks to help people throughout the world, especially in third world countries, who are suffering from vision impairment or are blind. He said this in an article I read last week, if we don't bring the doctor, they don't see the doctor. The World Health Organization estimates that 80%, 80% of the world's visual impairments are bl- and blindness can be cured. It's an amazing thought. That includes 18 million people today who are blind because they have cataracts. And for those of you who know, cataracts can be removed by a 10-minute, relatively simple surgical procedure. Dr. Jeffrey Tabin, who performs cataract surgeries in places like Nepal and Ethiopia, said this, they are blind to the point where they cannot live normal daily lives. And then he said, as miracles go, it's hard to beat making the blind see. 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, the greatest of all eye physicians, to come to this place 
to a world that was 100% blind, not physically, but spiritually, and not by cataracts, but because of our sin. 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent Christ into the world because we are unable and we are unwilling to see God the Father, His glory, our sin, and the need to be saved. We are unable to see that the way back to the Father, the way back to eternal life, to be in His presence, is through Christ. And if you were here last week, we had a chance to see that this eternal life that we're talking about is not just living forever and ever. All people will live forever and ever. It is the state and condition in which you live. Jesus said in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is eternal life, my beloved. Christ was sent by God the Father to reveal God the Father. We cannot know God apart from Christ. We cannot see God apart from Christ. He said in verse 4 of John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, the great work of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his teachings, the miracles that took place, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, all intended to point mankind to God the Father. You remember how we started our study over a year ago in the Gospel of John? Do you remember John chapter 1 when we are told that the Word who is Christ became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth? And then in verse 12 it says, And all who receive Him, all who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. Christ came for this purpose. Believing in Jesus Christ is essential if you are to have eternal life. He is the one that opens up our blind eyes. He enables us to see the glory of His Father. He enables us to see the depth of our sin, that we cannot make it into eternal life. We cannot have God by trying to work in our own good merit or our own will. He shows us that we are helpless. He brings forth our crimes before this holy God, and He shows that He and the cross is the only way of salvation, the only hope that we have, the only refuge we have is in the one sent by God who died for our sins that we might, through repentance and faith, be saved. He is the high priest who intercedes for us even at this very moment. And that means, my friends, that Jesus Christ is the most important person in all of human history. It's why he is the most controversial person in all of human history as well. Your understanding of who he is, the one sent by God, And the message that he brings determines everything for your eternity. You believe it. You believe him. You believe the message. And that means that you know the Father. And you have eternal life even now. You reject it. If you reject Jesus Christ, the one sent by God, if you reject the message of salvation that he brings through the cross, then you do not know the Father. You do not have eternal life now. And if you continue in that state until you die, you will perish. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. You will spend an eternity separated from this most glorious God. And that means what you already know. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. You cannot say, I do not care. You cannot say, I do not, it doesn't matter what I think of him. It matters eternally what you think of him. 
30 times in the Gospel of John, it says Jesus was sent by God. 30 times. Why? That we might know this God-man, this messenger, and the message that he brought. Because to not know him and to not know the message is death. So by God's grace, with the Gospel fresh upon your mind, we will return to our Lord's high priestly prayer here in John 17. And we will see here in this particular part of the passage, last week in verses 1 through 5, Jesus was praying for himself. And what we really saw is he was praying on behalf of the Father and behalf of the church. And as we get into this next section, verses 6 through 10 and then all the way through 19, which we'll look at next week, he now begins to pray for the disciples, for the 11 that are still with him in this high priestly prayer. And what we're going to look at by God's grace is seeing how the one sent by God relates to the the 11 and therefore how he relates to us. And he does this by one, praying for those who are given to him. Number two, those who keep his word. And number three, those who glorify his name. Christ prays for those who are given to him by God the Father. Those who keep his word, the word the Father gave Jesus to give to them. And he prays for those who will glorify his name. Let's look at the first point. One, those who are given to him. Before offering up specific prayers of supplication, which we'll look at next week, Jesus explains why he's praying for them at all. Why is he praying for the eleven? And he begins on this divine side, on the heavenly side, of talking how God, before the foundations of the world, actually came, presented this glorious truth that we would know him before we ever were. Look at verse 6. Jesus says to the Father in his prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. God the Son made manifest. That word is to make known. It's to reveal. It's to unveil. He made known to his people the name of God, the character and nature of this most holy, good, and gracious God. And he did so in several ways. One, by his very presence. We're told in Hebrews 1.3 that he, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He revealed to us the name of God in his teachings. John 12.49, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. He revealed himself through his miracles. John 10, 38. Jesus said, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He revealed himself to us. He revealed the Father to us in his love. John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them how long? To the end, completely. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God the Father. God's power and God's goodness. God's mercy and God's grace, God's holiness, and God's justice. And he had to make God the Father known to us because we cannot and we will not know this God. Our sin hates this God. Our sin blinds us to this God. We are unable and unwilling. But that is a horrible thing because if we do not know God, as we saw last week, we do not have eternal life. That means our destiny, our eternal destinies, are wrapped up in our knowing God or not knowing God. And so Christ came to change that. Christ came that we might know God the Father. These teachings of our Lord's and the miracles were on display for thousands 
and have been testified to millions over the centuries. But I want you to look again at verse 6. Only those given to Jesus by the Father would see and would believe. Verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. Jesus said, these 11, these 11, I'm going to make known these eternal truths. I'm going to show these 11 and they are going to know that you are God. And then through these 11, through the gospel message, it's going to go out to the world. And they will know, the world will know that you are God. All those God has ordained from eternity past to be saved and serve His Son. And by God's grace, that includes you because you know Christ and you know God the Father. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he said, God, He chose us in Him when? Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And then it says, in love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and His will. Look at verse 6 again. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Our own evil is what makes us blind. We do not want to see God, and we do not want to know Christ, but Christ came to overcome our blindness. He came to cut away the sinful cataracts that prevent us from seeing that He is the way and the truth and the life. John said of Jesus in John 3.19, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We do not see because we are evil. We do not want to see because we are evil apart from Christ. But the good news is this. If you know Christ, you've been born again. He's given you a new heart. He's given you new desires. He's given you eyes, spiritual eyes, that were dead before Jesus that enables you now to see God the Father. And in seeing God the Father... You repent and you believe and you have eternal life with Him. Look at verse 6 again. Yours they were, speaking about the Father, and you gave them to me, speaking of the Son, and they have kept, past tense, your word. To keep God's word is another way of saying obeying God's word. To obey God's word here in the context of this message is to say that you have faith. Jesus could be saying, they believe, Father, They've kept your word. They believe. They believe what I've said. They believe the miracles. They believe the testimonies. They believe it all. And they had all, all 11. Judas is already gone. They had put away their idols. They had put their trust and their faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ to save them. They had surrendered their lives. And they knew that it was all God's doing, that he's the one that came to them. He's the one that called them. He's the one that helped them see because they could not see on their own. They knew in their heart of hearts, they knew they were not there because of their good works. They knew they, didn't, they did not choose God. Christ came to them and he called them by name. He said, come and follow me. They know the Father because of what Christ has revealed, because they were chosen according to the counsel of God's great will to be saved. And so he saves. They were chosen by God and given to Christ and compelled to believe compelled to see, compelled to love and to worship. You see, my beloved, no one, no one is dragged into the kingdom of God. No one needs to be dragged into the kingdom of God against his or her, her will. It's probably one of the most foolish arguments against the whole idea of Reformed theology, that if God chooses you before the foundations of the world to be saved, some argue that, well, 
if he does that, then there are probably some who are saved that don't want to be saved, and there are some who want to be saved that are not saved. Of course, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible says clearly that we all start off in the same place. We all hate God. No one wants to be saved. No one wants to know the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. No one. Paul said in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one, not one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they, we, have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. But when Jesus manifests the Father to his elect, listen, when Jesus Christ came to you and he gave you eyes to see and a heart to believe and he showed you the Father, you believed. When he said to you, listen, son or daughter to be. Here is my father. Here is the cross. Here is the gospel. He opened your eyes and he compelled you with a new heart and new desires and a new mind to believe. And you did. Now of your will, your new will and your new heart, you believed. And you wanted to come. And you wanted to repent. And you wanted to become part of this family. And you know that to be true because that's what happened to you if you're truly saved. You know that you were running from God and he stopped you. If it was like me, he grabbed you behind the back of the neck and he said, where are you going? And I said, as far from you as I can. And he said, oh, no, you don't. And he turned me around after about a year and a half and he turned me and he turned me and he turned me. And then finally, by his grace, I saw him and I saw Christ and I saw the nature of my sin and I knew my hopelessness and I wanted to believe and I wanted to pursue God. I wanted to be loved by him and I wanted to love him in return as bad as I am at that. And he did that to you if you know him. You want to because he enables you to want to. You know, several times I've had the great blessing of, of taking people flying who have never been flying before. It's a true joy for me to get someone up in the air for the first time. And it has not been infrequent that some have gone with much trepidation in heart. As you can imagine, probably their fear of me flying the plane, which would be a good fear they, fearful of things they probably didn't understand, how an airplane flies, basic aerodynamics, you know, if the engine stops, can we still glide, and things like that. But on more than one occasion, after I would speak to them, and I would soften their heart, so to speak, to their fear of flying, and I would get them in the airplane, quite frequently, as soon as I would get them up to about 3,000 feet, and they would get a chance to see God's glorious creation at that altitude, things would change. And I'd come down, and say, can we go again? Can we go again? In fact, one young lady loved it so much, she went out and got her own pilot's license so she could do it herself. My beloved, once Jesus makes his father known to a man or a woman, that man or that woman must believe, they must come, and they must be saved because of what they now see. It's so glorious to see God for the first time. It's so amazing to know this father. God is too good and his wrath too awful to turn away once Christ gives you eyes to see, once he cuts away those cataracts of sin, and you see God the Father, you will believe. You will worship. So first I pray by God's grace we see Jesus praying for all of those who have been ordained before the foundations of the world to know the Father. And all those given to God the Father, given to him by the Father, this is the divine side, this great work of the Father and Son working to save people. That's the divine side. But I also want us to see that there's a human side to it. 
there's a responsibility, there's a response to it that by His grace and mercy we will see as well. And it has to do with keeping His word. Jesus said at the end of verse 6, they have, He's speaking of the 11, they have kept your word. Most rejected it. Most did not believe, but some did. And the disciples did. The disciples believed. And how can we know they believed? Is there anything in these verses that can give us an understanding that they actually did? Point number two, Jesus prays for those who keep his word. Who keep his word. What, what does that mean, to keep his word? What does this word keeping entail? And, and how is it that the disciples were changed in their heart to actually do that? Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus now again praying to the Father. Now they... Speaking of the eleven, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's a mouthful, is it not? I mean, that is. That's a a little on the ears, a bit overwhelming. So I want to take it apart. Their hearts had been forever altered by grace through faith. In being born again, they have been changed. And they've been changed in three distinct ways. And I want you to hear this because it's their testimony that we ride upon. But I want you to hear this because these are three distinguishing marks that if you are a believer, you ought to have as well. And if you do not have these marks, there should be cause for some concern. One, they know that everything the Son possessed was given to Him by the Father. Two, They know, they have received fully the words that God the Father gave to the Son to give to them. And number three, they believe that Jesus came from God and that God the Father sent him. Let's take a look briefly at each, these distinguishing marks. And as I go through these, ask yourself, do I know this? Have I received this? Do I believe this? Allow this to be a time where the Holy Spirit causes you for some really good, deep self-evaluation. First, the believer They know that Jesus was empowered by God the Father to do all the work that Jesus did to accomplish the great ministry of reconciliation. God the Father empowered Jesus Christ. Now, they had been with him for three years. And he finally says, now they understand. There's an implication that they didn't before, but now they do. They didn't quite see the connection between the Father and the Son, and now they get it. In fact, the tense in the Greek that says they know, it's an emphatic tense, and it's emphasizing that they, they, they know it thoroughly. They, they get it. They understand it. They finally comprehend it. That nothing, nothing that Jesus had done was apart from the Father enabling and compelling Him and empowering Him to do it. Nothing that Jesus had was that except which the Father himself actually gave him. In John 8, 29, Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. And then he said, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Christ only said what the Father wanted him to say. He only did the miracles the Father enabled him to do. You see, this teaching is so imperative. As I thought, why did Jesus say this? Had they fixed their eyes on only Christ and missed the Father in the redemption of man, then Christ's mission would have failed. If they only saw the kindness of Christ and they were only captivated by the wisdom of his teaching and his preaching, or they only saw the powers coming from Jesus, or or they saw that he was able to, to eat and commune with sinful people and yet never sin, 
if they saw this great compassionate heart of the Savior, but they did not see that it was the Father and Christ together, it was the Father empowering the Savior, then they would have missed the Father. And if they missed the Father, then Jesus' entire mission is missed. Why? He came to what? To make known the Father to us, to manifest God's name. The Jews missed it. Many of them missed it. They missed these eternal truths and they ascribed the power of Jesus to Satan and they they thought that his teachings were heretical. They did not see it. So many today miss the work of God the Father in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Many in the church today miss this. They think of Jesus as as some historical figure, some great leader, some moral teacher. And they don't realize that his entire life All his words, all of his actions, his death upon the cross, empowered and given to him by the Father. He did nothing and could do nothing apart from God the Father. Some even today, they reject that he actually existed. But to not accept that everything Christ did was of God is to reject him and to reject his message. But the disciples knew this. They believed this. With all certainty, they believed that the life that Christ lived was real, they were there, and that it was empowered by God the Father. And so they were making this connection between the the salvation of mankind from the Father to the Son, working together in this great harmony, and they needed to, and we need to. You must know with all certainty that the testimony of Jesus Christ is because of the Father. Jesus said in John 10, 38, even though you do not believe in me, he said, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so Christ is saying, you want a distinguishing mark of my disciples? And I will say to you, church, you want a distinguishing mark of your saving faith? You must know that Jesus Christ was empowered by God the Father. He was sent by God the Father and he worked by the power of God the Father. There's another thing here. He says they received fully the words, the teachings given by the Father to the Son. Look at verse 8. In his prayer, Christ said, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. God the Father communicates to God the Son what to say. And then God the Son spoke to his people, his people. Here are the eleven. And what? They received it. They received it. In John 15, 15, you heard me tell you this. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, speaking of the disciples, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. They had received it. In fact, that word, that's just a weak word in the English. The word in the Greek means to apprehend or to take hold of. Better yet, it takes hold of you because that's what the word of God does. If you have received his word, then his word has come to you. you. You absolutely understand it, but it means so much more than that. You can understand the word of God and not be captivated by it. You can understand the word of God and not receive it. Here, Jesus is saying, my disciples have received my word. They've accepted it in their hearts and in their minds. They, they didn't understand it fully yet. Pentecost hadn't come. Pentecost was going to come, and all the stuff they were confused about, they would understand. Three years of doctrine, of prophecy, of truth. Three years of how to worship and how to love and how to care for your family. Three years of how to make disciples and how to serve one another. Three years and how to obey the government. 
I mean, Christ taught so many glorious things. And he's saying here, it's the most miraculous statement. He's saying they got it. They've received it. It's got them. And they're going to live in accordance with it. They have apprehended it. And it is a distinguishing mark of their saving grace. And that means, my beloved, if you have received the word of God, if it has apprehended you, it must go beyond cognitive knowledge. It must be more than you saying, oh, I understand that. If, if I'm preaching and teaching, if you're reading the Bible and you understand it, I praise God for that. But if you do not receive it, if this time together as a church is not, it does not go beyond you hearing the word and then just leaving, if it doesn't grab you and doesn't hold you, then there's something, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Because to, be, to receive the word is to not only understand it, it is to align your life with it. It is how, it's to have it's the word define you. If I take my vows to love my wife, if on that day, 26 years ago, I said, I, 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 I promise to love you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, until death do we part. If I make that promise with my mouth, and, and I go even one step further. If I believe that those are really good principles by which a marriage should live by, a husband and wife should align their lives by, but I do not, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, live in accordance with those vows, then I deceive myself and I deceive my wife. James said, 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers who only what? Who only deceive themselves. To receive God's word then, my beloved, the disciples did, and you must also. It's to understand it, and it's to do it. It's to know it, and by God's grace, live in accordance with it. In fact, I would go one step further. There's great danger in hearing the word of God. And if you're a churchgoer, week after week after week, hearing the word of God and not submitting to it. Great danger, because you will come before your creator, and he will say to you, week after week, year after year, you heard the truth, you heard my word, and you never received it. And you say, no, I understood it. He says, oh, yes, you did. But you never submitted to it. You never lived by it. The disciples did. By God's grace, you do too, if you know him. So a distinguishing mark for the disciples, a believer knows that everything the son possessed was given to him by the father. Two, the, re- the believer receives fully the words that God the Father gave to the Son. One more mark. A child of God, taken out of the world, believes with all their heart that Jesus Christ came from God and God the Father sent Him. Without question, you know and you believe that God the Father sent Jesus Christ and Christ came from God. The disciples knew this, it says, fully. They fully knew it. They came to know in truth It's a way of emphasizing they got it too. They got that Jesus Christ is divine because he came from God. And they got the fact that God the Father sent him on this great missional work. This great work, the origin, the mission, the the person and the work come together harmoniously. God the Father sending the Son to do the work. To reject his divinity, to reject his mission, is to reject God the Father. And many of our Lord's Jewish contemporaries did just that. They rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they rejected the message that was sent by God to be given to fallen man. And so what happens? The wrath of God remains. 
The wrath of God remains upon every man, woman, and child that refuses to hear the gospel of grace, to to confess the crimes committed against God, to turn from those crimes, and to receive forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Matthew chapter 21, hear this parable. You like stories, don't you? This is a good one. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Those are the prophets. Again, the owner sent another servant, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son. He sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw that it was the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He's talking to the Jews. And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. It was the person and the work of Jesus Christ that makes the Father known to sinful man. If we will not listen to the prophets, if we will not listen to the word, If we will not listen to Jesus Christ who came and then died, if we will not listen, then there is no hope for you. There's no hope for you. It's through Jesus Christ that we gain access to the Father. It's seeing Him as the God-man who came to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death so that we will live. Believing this is a mark of a true disciple. So we've seen the divine side, the first point, that God the Father ordains people to be saved. And then we've seen the human side, our responsibility is to what? We're to know that Christ was empowered by the Father. We're to receive His Word, to be apprehended by it and live in accordance with it. And we are to believe with all our might that Jesus Christ came from heaven and God the Father sent Him to do the work of redemption. How many of you are still with me? I pray every single one of you can say, I, I, I know that, I've received that, I believe that, I pray so. And if not, then today is the day of salvation, you can. Last point, I want to see how Jesus prays for those who will accomplish his ultimate purpose. What was his ultimate purpose? Remember last week? To bring honor and glory, glory to the Father. That's why he came. Ultimately, you say, well, I thought he came to save us. Of course, we get caught up in the glory. But the purpose of Jesus' coming was to glorify the Father. And the Father to glorify the Son. And then we, we, His church, get brought up into that great glory exchange between the Father, Son, and as we will see, the Holy Spirit. Christ prays for those who will glorify His name so that He can glorify the Father's name. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, I am praying for them. Praying for who? For the disciples. He said, I am praying for them. And then He said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And so in our Lord's high priestly prayer, 
he's praying specifically for the disciples. And we will see that by implication, praying for the church, praying for you as well. He says, I'm not praying for the world. That sounds a bit harsh. He said, well, that's mean. Does it mean that he never prayed for the world? Does it mean that we ought not pray for the world? Of course not. Jesus prayed for the world. In fact, on the cross, one of the most glorious prayers he ever made was what? Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a prayer for the world. That's a prayer for everyone. In fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 44, he said to the church, to what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a prayer for the world. Paul goes one step further in 1 Timothy 2.1. Paul said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All people. So this is not a prohibition on prayer for the unsaved. Please do not take that. When Jesus said, well, you know, Jesus didn't pray for the world, then I'm not going to pray for the world. In this passage, Jesus Christ, as our high priest, is praying for the disciples. And he tells us why. He says, I'm praying because... They belong to the Father. And if the Father loves them, Jesus loves them. Because the Father Father loves them, Jesus cannot not love them. He says, I'm praying for them because the Father has given them to me. They're this precious gift. I'm praying because God has given me the church. He says, I'm praying for them because, as we'll see next week, they're going to carry on this mission. I mean, they're going to do the work that I've come to set them to do which was to take the gospel of grace and to proclaim the glorious name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to make known the path of salvation. He's praying for this global mission that would take place. He could not pray for the world in this capacity. He can't pray for people who hate God to share the gospel. His prayer for them, as our prayer for them, should be salvation. Salvation. My beloved, oftentimes you will Offer up prayer requests to me or to members of our church for people who are unsaved. And you will pray for things like a job because they're out of a job or you'll ask for prayer for their physical well-being or or, or marital crisis or the raising of children. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But if you are not praying for their souls, if your prayer for the world is, is anything other than them seeing God the Father and repenting and following Christ... And even if, he, even if those prayers are answered, or you think they're answered, and the marriage is restored, and the job is given, they, and then what? And then, and then they perish. Pray for their souls. We certainly must be doing this. Christ closes this section with the most remarkable statement in verse 10. And I didn't quite understand it until I studied it. He said, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And it's this incredible intimacy that's now revealed. That, that we, the church, those that have known and know that God the Father sent the Son and empowered the Son and we've received His Word, He said, they're yours and, and, and they're mine and, and we love them. Um, it's this great intimacy, not only between the Father and the Son, but of us, that we're loved by both, infinitely and eternally. You are loved by the Father and you are loved by the Son and one day you'll ask the Holy Spirit, you love me too? And he said, well, of course, I've been with you this whole time. Jesus says something here that is earth-shattering. He says, all yours are mine. All yours are mine. And the better understanding of that in the Greek is Jesus saying, all that you have, Father, is mine. That's quite a claim. 
I mean, it's easy for us to say, or even for Christ to say, right, all that I have is yours. We can easily make that statement. I mean, God is the giver of it all. But to claim that all that God has is ours, for Christ to say that, no creature, no created being can say that. Only God can say that. Only the Son of God can make such a claim. Martin Luther was right when he said, this is a most extraordinary statement for Christ to say, all yours is mine. And a reason to believe because it is true that all that belong to the Father belong to the Son because the Son and the Father are one. He is God. And then Jesus says, I am glorified in them. I am glorified in my disciples. And he ends this, this particular section with this peculiar statement because we know the story. I mean, we know what happens. He's literally hours, if not less than that, from being arrested in the garden. And we know what happens. He's arrested, and what do they do? They scatter. They leave. In his greatest time of need, they desert him. And they, they allow him to be handed over, to be dishonored, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to be crucified. We saw already that their leader was prophesied, Peter. He was going to forsake Christ three times. And we know from the other gospel account, he will forsake Christ in the presence of Christ three times. When he says that last time, I never knew him, he will look at Christ and Christ will look at him. For three years they were together, night and day serving and learning and loving and sharing the gospel and doing this great work. And here when Christ needs them most, they flee to save their own skins. How is this glorifying? How can Christ say, I am glorified in them in what they're about to do? That was not glorifying their response to the Savior's arrest. But it was prophesied to centuries earlier Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will what? They will scatter. And as soon as they bound Christ and they led him away, those 11 faithful disciples, they scattered. Not glorifying. So how can Christ say, I am glorified in them? What did he know that they did not know at that moment? What did he know that in the midst of their rejection, they would understand at Pentecost? What did they know? They knew that in a matter of days, the Holy Spirit would come and turn these fearful men into spiritual titans. That the Holy Spirit would come and He would indwell those disciples. And those 11 men, soon to be 12 again, would testify to Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father. He knew that. They would soon know that. That Jesus was praying and their prayers, His prayers would be answered as the 11 disciples would boldly go into the world and declare God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the gospel of grace. That they would do this great work with their words, with their lives, in their deaths. They would do this great work of testifying to the Savior. They would tell the world of how God did send this man. They would tell the world of how this man was born of a virgin and how this man went his entire life never sinning. They would tell people this, that this Jesus never thought, never spoke, never acted in any way that was contrary to the Father's will, and people would not believe. 
They would say, oh, we saw this man do miracles like no other man. We heard this man teach like no other man. And then we saw this man arrested. We saw him beaten. And we saw him nailed to a cross. And we saw him take his last breath. They will testify to this. They say, we saw him buried. We saw the tomb sealed and the centurion standing guard. And then on Sunday, we saw him again and he was alive. This is what they would testify to. And then they'd say, we saw him for 40 days. We ate with him in resurrected form. We talked with him in resurrected form. And then they will say, and we saw him. We saw him bodily ascend into heaven. And they would go into the world and they would tell the world of these eternal truths. That this man came and died so that we can live. They would testify to the holiness of God. They would testify to the sin of man. And they would testify to the absolute necessity of faith in Christ for anyone to be saved. They would tell these truths to the world. They would call us to receive the word of God and to testify as well. To declare boldly of this God-man. And centuries later, here we are. Right? He came to point his children to the Father. And here we are. You say, well, not many in number. Not here. There are many in number throughout the world. There are many people saved by grace who this very morning are worshiping God because of the testimony of these 11. And then we are called by God to become their mouthpiece, to continue the proclamation, to continue the declaration of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. We are called to carry the testimony of of this news to the ends of the earth. I believe this is what Jesus meant when he said, I am glorified in them, not just them, but in their life in the Holy Spirit and in the church. As we would continue the apostolic message, as we would become couriers of the good news. You know that word courier? You know what that word means? It's a a message carrier. It comes from a Latin word that means to run, that we will become runners. We'll become runners in the gospel of grace. My beloved, Jesus Christ is glorified glorified when we are running the race well. When we don't just gather and we don't just sing, but we run the race that Christ has given us to run. You say, well, what is that? I don't even know what that is. We've already been told that you, just like the disciples, that you will know that Jesus Christ came from God and was sent by God, that you will believe in your heart the word of God, you'll receive it and you'll live in accordance with it, that you will believe that this God-man was empowered by God the Father to do this great work. You will believe all these things and you'll be changed by them. And in being changed by them, you will daily run the race of living and sharing the gospel, that your life will be changed in your home and at work and in your neighborhood and in the church that you will be a person that is truly born again and that your heart is alive for Christ, that your words will testify to His glory, that your thoughts will be purified because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, that you will do what the apostles did and you will go out and you will tell this world, this place of this God. You'll be a courier just like the disciples, personally testifying to God the Father who is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And many 
many will believe too. So let me ask you as I close, how are you running? Maybe I should ask, are you running? Are you being a faithful courier of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You can be saved and not run well. It's just not a good thing to do. It's dishonoring to God. It's a waste of your life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And then he says what? Run in such a way as to get the prize. You say, well, is the prize salvation? Of course not. You've been saved by grace through faith. You can't run to be saved, but you can run in your salvation. You can run as a saved soul. And that's what we're called to here, to be couriers of this faith, to run hard. It's hard to run hard. Anybody who tells you it's not has never run the race of Christ. It's hard. But I would say it's harder to not run. It's so destructive for you and your family and the church. And that day when you stand before the Father and he says, give an account of your life. And you say, you know, I ran that day. And I ran that day. But I sat most of the time. He will say, come and enter my rest. But that's not a testimony anybody wants to give before the Father. I mean, don't you want to go before the Father? Like some of the athletes we're seeing, they finish the race and they're huffing and they're puffing because they ran as hard as they could run. I mean, they ran. Run the race to win the prize. God is glorified in the labor. He's glorified in the running. You say, I run and it seems so feeble. There seems to be so little fruit. Keep running. You say, I've run for years now and I'm tired. Keep running. When does this race end? When you see Christ. Have any of you seen Christ dead in the flesh? Then keep running. The Father sent the Son to run the race of the cross, to die for your sins so that you by grace through faith could be saved. Jesus Christ sent the disciples to run the race of the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. And the church is to continue running this race of our apostolic brothers to be faithful couriers, continuing to share the good news of the gospel with the world, all to the glory of God the Father and God the Son. This, my beloved was the prayer that Jesus had for the 11. This is the prayer that he has for you by grace, and it will be by grace we will live as an answer to this prayer. I want to live in a manner that answers this prayer of Christ to run. Will we carry the distinguishing marks of those saved by God before the foundations of the world to the world. Will we take these truths to them? If we don't, no one will. If not the church, then who? It must be us. By God's grace, Camden Avenue Baptist Church will be a church that runs this race well to 
his honor and to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know in our heart of hearts that if we are saved, we're saved because you saved us. We know that we never would have believed had you not given us hearts to believe. We never would have repented had you not shown us the Father and his holiness and the depth of our sin and and the cross in Christ. We certainly would not follow your Son if it were not for him enabling us to do so through the Holy Spirit that was given to us as a gift. Father, you you have sealed us for the day of redemption. We stand now as sons and daughters. We have no fear of condemnation because when we come before you, we will be covered with the blood of the Lamb. I ask, Father, that until that day comes, for myself and my brothers and sisters here, I pray this for your church throughout the world, that we be faithful couriers, that you would set our feet on fire with the gospel, that you would open our closed mouths, extend our tight-fisted hands, and give us a love for one another and for this fallen world that truly makes your name known. Christ manifests to the disciples. The disciples have manifested to us. Let us manifest it to the world. Let it be unveiled in our lives, I pray. Father, I ask all this for the same reason that Christ prayed for it, that you, our Father, most worthy of all glory and honor, will be glorified. Father, magnify yourself here. Do a great work in our lives, I pray. Do it here in in San Jose, in Cambrian Park. Make our mission fields, mission fields that are alive in Christ because of the testimony that we bring to them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.